Welcome to Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I really love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. God didn't make promises about those lands. When he made covenants, it's about this spot, it's about this place. And so how do we bring in others from far and distant places and make what we have relevant to them? That's always been a struggle. That was Professor Pinchas Shir. He is the Associate Professor of Ancient Cultures, and he joined me to discuss his course, Jewish Apostle Paul, Part 2, The Gospel and Torah in the Roman World. There's something fascinating, confusing, and compelling that is happening in the book of Acts, the story of the history of God's people that was firmly anchored in a particular land was spreading. What happens when all of that history behind who Jesus was, was unknown to the new audience? This was a baffling question to both the early Jewish Christians and the early Gentile Christians, and it influenced the way Paul wrote to the early Christians in the Roman Empire. Now, I'm someone who thinks context changes everything. Geographical, political, and religious context cannot be ignored when we read the biblical text. And this is something I appreciate in Professor Shear's course. He begins by stating that we have to understand the context in which or into which Paul is sending a letter. Paul was not writing to the modern church now to tell us how to set up our church structures. He's talking to them so to start the conversation, I asked Professor Shear if he thought that we can really see a huge difference in what Paul is doing just based on where the churches themselves were located. Absolutely. I mean, I can see all of his letters to different churches and different places. They are absolutely unique. And I think this is a the reason why I make that point in the beginning and the opening of the course is because it is such a disservice to people. It is such a disservice to Paul's own letters to read them in this homogenized way. Uh, a lot of times we divorce the letter from the context. And this is where we actually kill the letter because each one of those cities, each one of those communities that he writes to, they're unique and their situations are unique. He's not just writing a letter like a theological treatise or something like that on salvation. It, is, it doesn't sit down and say, well, let me take all my bright thoughts on salvation and or justification and write this wonderful philosophical tractate on the point and then send it to some random people. Which is how we actually read his writings. Exactly. And then send it to some random people in Rome or something like that. Right. No, he is responding to very particular problems that they're experiencing. He is actually trying to deal with an issue, okay? We have a problem, and I'm going to write you a letter addressing your problem. 
I'm not going to write you a letter addressing some generalities about the topic of salvation or something like that. I'm going to deal with your issue. And so when we read the letters of Paul as if they are generic, as if they are basically the foundation for systematic theology, I think we make a huge disservice to ourselves and Paul and to his writings, and we don't get them because that's not how he meant them. He meant them to be read in context of a particular problem. He's responding. His letters have a purpose, and we give them the purpose. The purpose we give them is theology, which is not why he wrote. If he knew he was writing theological textbooks or something like that, he, he probably would have chosen some different words. This is where even if we dig into the context of the book of Acts, it's actually quite helpful for understanding the Pauline epistles that are next in, in the way that we've organized the canon. And in particular, we have this meeting that happens in Acts chapter 15. And I always point out to my students, I'm like, this right here, that meeting, that is crucial. It's changing everything, even in the book of Acts itself. Can you tell us a little bit about what this conversation is and what kind of, it's not really a crisis, but what type of significant change in their cultural context is happening for these leaders of this brand new thing called the church. Right. So Acts 15 obviously is a very pivotal chapter. And the reason it's pivotal is because it addresses the issues of non-Jews in the movement, in this greater movement of believing in Messiah. And it doesn't seem, it kind of seems counterintuitive to a lot of people because most people think of Christianity and following Jesus as a non-Jewish thing. Okay, but that's not what we see in the book of Acts. I mean, we can go through the book of Acts and for chapters and chapters and chapters, there's not one non-Jew actually shows up. I mean, I think the first one shows up is Cornelius and that's chapter 10 of Acts. But then we've already have, I don't know how many decades have passed. But it, actually, I mean, I, I've been doing a course on the stories of the Jewish church that kind of trace through this whole progression. And Acts, of course, is a literary creation, so it's not always going to follow history exactly. It likes to tell stories, and it's more meant to be inspirational rather than us trying to trace through history. It's not a history book, but it does contain a lot of historical data. And so this Acts chapter 15 is very pivotal because it, it is a transition of us showing the community dealing with a problem, with an issue that they didn't quite know how to address because that problem did not exist in this way, shape, and form before. So what's so important about Acts 15 is and what essentially leads up to it is the fact that Paul, as the emissary, as the apostle, he travels throughout the greater Mediterranean world, and he enjoys a considerable success of spreading this gospel, this news of Jesus as being the Messiah of Israel throughout all these different, essentially, pagan towns. And he does enjoy some amount of success in Jewish community, but he also enjoys great success among non-Jews. And when non-Jews start to come into the movement, this question of how do we treat them, what do we do with them comes up. And this has always been an issue of decision for, for Jewish leaders, like what do we do? Because the faith of Israel wasn't really set up to be a universal religion type. It's it's patriarchal. It's all based on family. It's all about the 12 tribes, the 12 clans, the land. We're only talking about this tiny little piece of land, Israel. That is the land of promise. That is the land that God blessed. So yes, other lands are wonderful too, but God didn't make promises about those lands. 
when he made covenants, it's about this spot, it's about this place. And so how do we bring in others from far and distant places and make what we have relevant to them? That's always been a struggle. So one of the solutions, one of the common solutions that has been around uh, in the second temple period, of course, is conversion. Where And that's not foreign, it's not new, but you would have people who are outsiders come in and basically become an insiders in community by forsaking their cultural identity and taking on a new cultural identity, and therefore taking on this new God, per se, that is attached to this ethnos, to these people, and to their history, and to their lore. And so they are becoming voluntarily part of a new culture and a new people by giving up something as well. And that's the price they have to pay, essentially. So yes, conversion was a a very real solution that existed in the Jewish community. And that was the primary solution. However, if you read the Torah, there is other solution, and that is what we call Gerim. You have these sojourners, you have these settlers who are living alongside of Israel. Even the land of Israel in ancient times, uh, after the conquest, you know, Joshua and all the wars that happened. So you always have these sojourners who are not Israelites. They're not from the 12 tribes. Yet they align themselves with Jewish people and they choose to live within the same towns, the same communities, and they voluntarily agree to follow the local laws and the local traditions. And they're certain in certain ways they have to adapt and they realize, but they're not asked to become Jews. They're not asked to become circumcised. They're not asked to give up their language and their culture 100% entirely and become something they're not. They're allowed to continue to have their unique identity but there are some local rules that they have to follow. And so the laws of Gerim are actually described in uh, Leviticus, very specifically chapters 17, 18, 19, and they're very explicit. Now, when we get to Acts 15, and this is fascinating to me, they, they say, what do we do with these non-Jews? I believe they follow the pattern of Leviticus exactly to the letter. I, I think it's like, I look at the commandments in Leviticus and what commandments the Gerim, the sojourners, the non-Israelites living within Israel, who enjoy actually quite a bit of social rights and protections, and they do have rights within Israeli society, not full rights, because they're not considered Ezrach, they're not considered native, but, there's, but they do have a lot of protections under the law. And so they have been given very specific commandments. One of them specifically is to abandon idols. They're not allowed to worship other gods. Another one, they they were to basically swear off from sexual immorality. They're not allowed to do that. They were also not allowed to eat blood. So if you look at Acts 15 and what James writes and what the apostles decide, what commandments should we ask these non-Jews to do? Curiously enough, it follows exactly that same pattern. The things that they tell them to abstain from are those very things which you find in the book of Leviticus that a Gerim are told to do, essentially, in ancient Israel. So it's not that they're creating something new, but they are basically placing these sojourners from, the, from this particular era, even though they are maybe living in Galatia. They're saying these people are with us. They are as if they were sojourners with us. And so, yes, we're not going to make them circumcised. We're not going to convert them. We're not going to make them into Jews because realistically, we couldn't. They living in Rome or Galatia, how can we possibly incorporate them into our community? How can we teach them what it's like to be a Jew when they're living in a world that's not Jewish? 
it's for practical reasons cannot be done. They have to stop and drop what they're doing, move here to Jerusalem, and then they can learn how to be Jews. But they can't do it living where they are. And there's no need for them to do that. So Paul's point, theological, is that this is the end times. Paul is an apocalyptic Jew. He looks at the prophets and he says, look, in the end days, the prophets said they were going to do this. They said that people from all nations will flock to Jerusalem and people from all nations recognize these things and they will worship alongside of Israel. This is exactly what's happening. Paul looks at the hope of the prophets. Peter sees some of the same things. He looks, he says, I went to Cornelius and the Holy Spirit comes upon these people. And if God gives them the Holy Spirit, and this is a promise given to us Jews, then who are we to try to make them into Jews first so that we can validate God giving them Holy Spirit? I'm like, no, God has already validated them by giving them the, the very endowment that he promised to us. So can we just accept them as they are? And so there's that big, long dialogue that goes on. And there's always more than one side. Of course, this is a Jewish dialogue. So there's some people who say, no, we should circumcise them. And other people say, no, we shouldn't. That's what Acts 15 is all about. That's, that's that argument within the community. How are they going to settle it? And they, they, they do settle it along the lines, along the lines of or tradition. Essentially, what I see is in the book of Leviticus. That is the solution. We treat them like we have treated always people who came from the outside but came close to Israel. And these people are clearly accepted by God. They're clearly a part of our community. So we're not going to lay upon them these burdens that they cannot really bear because they didn't grow up with Torah. They didn't grow up with these things. So to ask them all of a sudden to comply to all these things, it's a huge, huge ask. So can we just ask them not to do these things first and let them go and learn the rest as they join us in worship in the synagogue and places like that? They will pick up a lot of other things, but these are the things that they got to do because that's what sojourners were asked to do. It's really interesting because as you, as you're talking about the difference of a convert versus a gerim, in my head it makes me think they're in Acts chapter 15. It's like they're trying to figure out, okay, do we make everyone be like Ruth? And Ruth did exactly what you said: gave up her family, her worship of gods, and her land to belong to the Israelite God family and lands. So it's almost like in Acts 15, they're going, okay, are we going to ask everyone to be like Ruth? Or are we going to ask everyone to be like the other sojourners who lived among us throughout all of Israelite time? And that's an interesting way to frame the conversation that is happening in Acts 15. They're actually anchoring it back into their past. Always, always, it's always anchors into the past. And the, what I do in the course, I believe, is I bring in this, this dynamic of Ruth, the Moabitess, and Naaman, the Arabian. We have two people who are outsiders yeah. who relate, both relate to Israel, and both relate to Israel in a very genuine way. I mean, you can call those experiences genuine conver conversion, genuine salvation, like whatever happened to them certainly did happen. There's transformation that goes on there. But Ruth chooses to, your people will be my people. I'll die where you die. I'll be buried. My life, my future is going to be 100% with Israel. And she just gives, gives up her own culture, her own family. And she says, she's, I'm fine with that. My future is here. And she becomes, you know, great-grandmother of King David. And so on. she makes it into Jesus's genealogy. So that's a pretty bold move, right? That actually paid off quite a bit. Now, imagine that Nehemiah is a whole different story. He is this Aramean, and he comes and he is healed of leprosy, yet 
the choice that he makes is different. What he says essentially is that, well, your God will be my God. I do believe in your God because clearly he healed me of leprosy and you do have the power of this amazing God, but my people will be my people. I'm not moving out of Aram. I'm going back to where I am. In fact, I would like to worship your God in Aram. Can I have some sacks of dirt? Because, <laughs> because ancient people did believe that God and gods and land were connected. So he's like, I need a tangible connection to this God of Israel. So can I have some Israeli dirt with me, please? So we have two people in history that essentially both have a transformative experience with God, yet the path they choose is different. Now, what's important for us to understand is in Judaism, both paths are valid. There's nothing wrong with either one. You can choose this path of conversion, but you also are just as beloved by God if you choose the path of Naaman the Aramean and choose to worship God of Israel in solidarity with Israel, but not as an Israelite per se. So, and that's really what we see play out. There's always been this understanding of two paths. It's not being a Jew that makes you sort of say acceptable to God. People understood that. That that's this, all the stories in the Torah of people like Noah not really being an Israelite, but yet being considered to be Tom, perfect Torah says, perfect, blameless, you know, and he's beloved by God. So it's not the Jewishness, sort of say, that makes you in with God. And there's that theological understanding on the part of many Jews. And that's why they say there's this other path. So let them follow this path. I think that's what's happening in Acts 15, essentially, is they're saying, we're not going to force anybody to convert. Now, that, that path of conversion, by the way, the Acts 15 decision doesn't close that path. It still becomes a, an opportunity for people. In fact, there are people who are proselytes in the book of Acts. One of the deacons, as the Bible puts it, that was appointed was a proselyte. It's clear that it says that. So proselytes are convert to Judaism in the first uh, century language. So that's what he was, along with Stephen. One of them is a proselyte. So it's a very interesting dynamic and a study of identities and how ancient people really understood conversion and, and these relational connections, nationality, the concept of belonging to a people, and then belonging to a religion of a people that's not really your people. And it gets dicey. I'll be honest with you, it gets complicated. It brings a whole new level of conversation, but it requires us to study it from that historical perspective, not from where we find ourselves today. And before we even get into how Paul was navigating those tricky waters, uh, since we just kind of talked about from the Jewish-Israelite historical point of view that there are two paths, what about from the Gentile point of view. What is it that comes into play when they're thinking about worshiping the God of the Jews within the context of the Roman Empire and what is really significant in terms of the ranking in society of people and how that ranking works? So from the from the Gentile perspective, what's in play? Well, there's actually something quite significant in play that you mentioned, the whole idea of ranking. and It's a social status. That's a really important aspect that I think most modern people completely miss out on because we live in diverse society where people have different types of status and we don't always give it a lot of weight, especially in America. People are just, everybody's equal and but status in the intro theoretically anyway theoretically, of course <laughs> we like to talk about it we believe in all believe in it right, right. whether it actually works out that way 
it's a different story. But in the ancient world, and, and especially in the Roman world, it was highly stratified. It's all about your status. And your status is connected to your family. It's connected to your ethnos, where you come from. So what, I, what I'm absolutely amazed by and what I'm floored by as I read the New Testament and I read the writings of Paul is that you have these people who are in a very good place, in a good standing in the Roman society, who are choosing to believe in the God of Israel, which essentially puts them outside of their own ethnos. Because to believe in the God of Israel is not like to take on another Roman deity. There's always a solution of appropriating another god from another conqueror, from another power, from another emperor, or something like that. You can always add one more where you already have a bunch. (laughs) But God of Israel is unique. He says, me and me only, and you can't have any other gods before me. So either you believe in me and you cast away all the other ones, or go on your way continuing to believe in many. That's the fact that people do make a choice to believe in the God of Israel, and they do struggle with letting go of the other gods uh, because it's so cultural for them. To me, that's absolutely amazing. But what they, when they do that, that alters their status, that alters their standing in society because they're choosing a faith and they're choosing a God of a people, well, honestly, who are subjugated. Let's look, let's look realistically at Jews. Let's look at Israel, not the strongest people out there and definitely defeated by the greatest power of Rome. And yet you are proposing to me that I would choose a religion of a defeated people. Wait a minute. Why would I believe in the God of people who were defeated by my people? When is it appropriate for for the victors to accept the God of the losers? That doesn't work. Yet that's exactly what I see happening. And and that's kind of how you know that this is truly supernatural. That's what's its play. Conversion and taking on a deity that is not from your family, not from your people, is actually a political and societal transformation that most people do not appreciate that those early followers who were not Jewish, who were taking upon themselves, they were going through. These were very bold steps, very brave steps, really steps away from their culture. And so I find that absolutely admirable, you know, that I can't explain it any other way that these people really have lived through transformative experiences that moved them to that point of decision, because it takes a lot of strength to kind of walk away. They had a lot to lose, and what they were losing was huge. And what they were gaining is this place that wasn't so clearly defined within Israel. And that's what Paul struggles a lot with. There's a lot of struggles of identity and confusion. Like, how do we fit into this picture? For for non-Jews, the struggle always, how do we fit into a picture of Israel? Short of conversion, how do we make it work? We're not Israelites. Our ancestors were not standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. We didn't come out of Egypt. We can't connect all those stories in the same way. How do we make them our own? And in which way do they benefit us? Where do we fit in? So that was always a struggle, I think, for a lot of people in that era, particularly because it wasn't really worked out. I mean, I know that Christian theology worked it all out nice and smoothly, you know, over hundreds of years. (laughs) But at that point, it didn't exist. Right. And at that point, there were lots of Jews who were following their Messiah. And then along come these non-Jews who don't quite know where to fit in. 
The big question we have yet to address is how does Paul wade into the conversation and coach Jews and Gentiles along? Next week, we will spend much more time looking specifically at Paul and his theology, using the letters to the Romans and to the Galatians as a test case. This course and many others like it are a part of the Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. If you click on the link in the notes at the bottom of this episode, it will only take you three minutes to enroll in the program. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. Bible.